I would be able to fly over cities on, and change my route a little bit on my way back and, and get imagery over uh, a village, or I would get imagery over a roadway or a line of communication. And what we found there was amazing. Uh, I mean, this was my pivotal point is I could see where roads were being washed out, drainage ditches weren't working. The, all the lights that were out in the city at one night, it's like, oh, this, their generator is out. And we had no idea. We had no idea until they got that imagery, and then they'd send folks out to repair it. This is the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonoella. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. And uh, we are so honored today to have Dan Hubert come on the show today. We're going to talk a bit about drones, surveillance drones, corporate espionage, and all of these great topics. So now... Dan spent a good while in the U.S. Navy serving our country honorably. He, ser- he worked at General Atomics after that, and currently he leads his company called Modus. Uh, we'll get a bit into that later on, but Dan, before we get into the weeds of our discussion and some of these great topics, I had a chance to chat with you a little bit before our recording session, and you had mentioned this great, funny story that might actually help frame some of your experience with surveillance drones. So you were a unit officer in charge of some UAVs, and it was your first day in Iraq. And I guess I'll let you take it from here. Sure. Thanks, uh, thanks, Andre. Yeah. Um, just to give your, your listening uh, cast a little bit of background, um, yeah, I have been a, a naval aviator, uh, and I retired after 20 years um, in that, in that timeline, you know, after coming back from, uh, 9-11 and Afghanistan overseas, I became a Top Gun instructor. Um, and part of what we do is design tactics for new platforms. And I, uh, was lucky enough to get picked up to do design for drone platforms. Uh, and because I did so well, they sent me to assist the army in an independent augmentee to do special forces. Um, so when I, um, my first day I got sent to, uh, to Iraq and Afghanistan. So I'm taking my first unit and I land in, in Iraq and I show up at my first site. And, um, now mind you, this is all supposed to be back in 2008, 2009, supposed to be super secret. So I haven't seen the airplane. I haven't seen a manual. I I really don't even know what I'm doing yet. Uh, I'm going to get briefed on site. That's usually how it works in the classified world. Um, so I show up and, you know, I'm expecting, you know, a, uh, you know, a Humvee to show up or something. Like that. No, I get a old pickup truck and some guys that are in plain clothes and big beards, you know, carrying M4s over their shoulder. And uh, we jump in this beat up car that, that probably is held together by bubble gum. And they take me through the entire base at the end of the air- airfield to this little tiny desolate um, pile of, of concrete pylons and a trailer and a tent. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? And it's like, well, Hey, I'd like to see the drones, you know, let's, let's go see the drones. And I'm, I'm thinking of what you guys are probably thinking of a large airplane looking, uh, drone, uh, like a reaper or a predator. Um, so it's going to be like 60 feet long. It's going to be big. It's going to be massive. It's going to be what every naval aviator wants manly. And uh, they open up this tent, and inside there, there is about about 20 of these little coffins, about six foot long, a couple feet wide. And they pop open this thing, and the, the drone pops open, the wings spread out. It's a six-foot wingspan. It's six foot long. It's got a little camera on the front. And I'm like, wow, that's disappointing. 
So what we did is uh, like every good aviator, uh, I'm, I'm, I haven't been briefed yet. So the first thing I do is I go into the trailer and I find the operator's manuals and I start to read. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to learn everything about my platform and everything that I'm going to. I'm going to be the best commanding officer I can be uh, under these circumstances. And, you know, the sun's starting to go down and this door opens inside the trailer. And I'm kicked back with my my boots on the desk. At the time, I used to chew. So I had a chew in. I'm reading this manual. And this kid goes, "Um, there's nobody around, sir. Um, We have a, uh, you know, we have an engine out. You know, and the first thing they teach you in pilot school, Andre, is that, uh, you know, you always follow the ABC. So, you know, it's always be cool. So, you know, I don't even lower my book. You know, I don't even act surprised. I just uh, say, okay, well, do your in-flight aerial restart procedures. Like, I really know what I'm doing yet. I haven't got to that page yet. Uh, he's like, yeah, sir, we don't have have an in-start restart procedure. It's like, oh, okay. So the book kind of slowly comes down. Like, so where are you at? Oh, downtown Baghdad. Now, mind you guys, there's nobody around. So I get up, I go walk into this console, never seeing this stuff before. And luckily, this console, this this is a computer, a keyboard, a mouse, and a hand control stick. And uh, the display is a map. And luckily, that map looked like our planning software for before we go fly. They're using it to actually fly. And the control stick, you think, is like, oh, yeah, I'm going to fly using the control stick like any good video game does. No, no, that's for the camera. You know, so we have this mouse that you click around and it, it tells it where to go. So it's like chasing the cursor. Um, and so I get in there and I look at it and it's, okay, where are you? It's like, okay, we're right over Baghdad. Great. And I ask those questions and I'm making this up as I go. I'm following my aviation air procedures from basic flight school 10 years before. And I'm like, okay. What's your glide ratio? And he says, oh, okay, we're going to glide, you know, 2,000 feet per mile or something like that. So, okay, how high are you? And I was like, okay, we're at uh, 2,000 feet. Okay, so we're going to go this far. And I literally wet chalk the, the computer screen to find out where we're going to land. I said, okay, land here. And, and we land this thing right outside the Tigris River. We managed to get out of Baghdad, which was a huge, uh, huge thing. And mind you, I only had 20 minutes of battery before we lost this thing completely. So I'm like, okay, hey, so you think this is the end of the story? (laughs) We're just getting started, Andre. And uh, so I go, okay, what's our reclamation procedures? Because normally when you have an aircraft down or something like that, you go get it. Oh, we don't have that. Like, oh, shoot. So now I'm calling my my boss, who I haven't met yet, and getting my butt chewed out for losing an airplane that I'm actually not in control of yet. And uh, and so we get, I get two helicopters to come out. you know, it's now like eight, nine o'clock at night. It's getting dark. And I am now remembering all my Top Gun mission commander things where I, I'm briefing the operation on the fly, you know, to two airplane commanders and, and, a, and a fire squad to go out and get this thing. Somehow we coordinated a predator to fly on top and we fly out and I've got NVGs on. Somebody actually gave me a gun, which was kind of crazy. Um, yeah, I've, I've had weapons, but you know, didn't actually really go out in the field before. And I'm now doing all the things that I practiced in Top Gun school. So we land in this this landing zone close to where it's supposed to be. I've got a radio talker and they're talking me on to where this target is. The predators over top and they're like, okay, where is this thing at? It's like, well, do you see the, you see the dike? Yes. Contact. Got it. Do you you see the, uh, the small grass building? No, no contact. Do you see the guy throwing rocks? 
Yeah, contact. He's throwing rocks at your drone. And so, okay. And so we're with NVGs and all this gear. We're, we're pumping out to get this thing. Miraculously, it landed without hardly a scratch. It just kind of glided and landed. Um, but we didn't have any instructions on how to get this thing taken apart. So we literally stand on the wings, break the wings, break the aircraft, duct tape it, and throw it back into the helicopter uh, and fly back. And so now it's like a midnight where I had arrived four in the morning, um, you know, at my at my station. So I call my boss and I said, "Hey, we're we're going to close this site for about two weeks uh, and you know redo some training and, and do some safety procedures, and we're gonna we're gonna go do this right." Um, and so that was my first day in Iraq. And by the time I left Iraq, which was about a year later, we had a zero accident rating. Uh, we're getting awards for intel- high quality intelligence collection and writing procedures that are still in use today inside the United States and inside the U.S. Army. So <laughs> that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Wow. I mean, that's, that's an awesome story, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you shared that with us. I'm sure uh, our listeners will enjoy it as well. So, so Dan, can you kind of give us a, a bit more of a brief round of your career? Um, because, you know, that, that story certainly uh, demonstrates, right, kind of how you got into this. But um, when did you, you know, really become an expert on using reconnaissance drones? And, um, and, and why did you kind of, you know, transition that into a career uh, in the private sector? You know, your life is about connecting the dots. And you never know what part of your life is, is actually going to be that pivotal moment. And really what it comes out to is, the things that you're doing today are, are, you know, really the joining of a whole bunch of experiences that now have meaning that you just didn't know were going to happen. Um, and so with that, you know, I, uh, I actually was, went to Penn State, you know, for a civil engineering. And in the, in the summer times, I, um, I worked construction. So I, I was a layout engineer um, working on my tan and, and telling dozers where to, to dig and cut, cut soil. Um, and then at a certain point in my life, I realized that I needed to leave Pennsylvania because I was young, I was feisty, and, and I just really felt like I would end up in jail at some point because I was having way too much fun. Um, so I decided to enlist in the Navy and uh, went through some of the spec warfare program and then eventually moved into naval intelligence where I was a geospatial photo interpreter. Um, you know, did a couple tours where I went out to Japan. I worked for a three-star admiral and was nominated to get a commission based on some of the work that I did. Um, you know, databases were just coming out. And so I learned how to code and I learned how to to handle a large amount of intelligence data. Uh, and so from there, they sent me back to Penn State where I went to college and I got my electrical engineering degree and I got into helicopters and 9-11 hit right in the middle of that. And I went back out to Japan where I'd done that three-star tour. Uh, but this time now I'm an aircraft helicopter commander, and we're deploying um, these multi-sensor helicopters off of small ships and eventually carriers. And we're the eyes and the ears of the battle group. So now, you know, where before I was translating that information and turning that into um, useful data for folks to make a decision, now I'm supplying that information uh, you know, where I have thermal cameras, I've got long range optical cameras, I've got uh, radar, I've got electrical sensors to detect signals. I have things I can throw under the water to hear ships. And I've got missiles and guns and all that good stuff that you like, uh, know and love. Um, you know, so 
after about four years of, of chasing pirates and doing stuff in Afghanistan and going around the world, you know, working on the global war, war and terrorism, uh, they sent me to Top Gun School, like what we talked about. And I became a Top Gun instructor and stood up a weapon school with uh, six other uh, folks and literally started to define how helicopters were going to be used with jet aircraft. And what happened there, uh, really briefly, we go in the timeline, is drones were first coming out and we were getting brand new. We were getting 540 new aircraft inside the Navy and we we're trying to get all the other airframes. We had seven airframes, I think, total, five to seven airframes. And we we're trying to get it down to one. Um, and so I eventually became the program manager uh, for my my commander on how we were going to implement all of this. And part of that 540, or in addition to, I should say, was drones. And all of a sudden, this helicopter drone was being thrown at us. And none of us wanted to touch this thing. <laughs> and this was my first real indoctrination with drones. Um, and so we, I had to actually figure out the manning, training, and equipage uh, of how we were actually going to use this thing. I mean, was it a pilot going to fly it? Was it going to be an enlisted person? Uh, was it going to be a different rating altogether? We had no idea. Um, so that's where I first got my first taste, and that was in 2007. Um, but from there, we went to, um, like I said, they sent me to Iraq, and I had a very successful tour there where you know I was literally writing the, the policies and doctrine in theater that would eventually be used later. You know, were, were other people doing it? Yes, but nobody had had to this point an intelligence background, a spec warfare background, and an aviation safety background um, that allowed me to really see things with a, with a new and unique lens. Um, so, you know, fast forward here a few years, I'm finishing off my 20 year tour. Um, and I was recommended to, um, where I was recruited by General Atomics to be a program manager on the, on some of the Reaper projects. So I had staffs of, um, you know, engineers and, and, and contact managers and stuff doing, building, um, Predator and Reaper drones for the Air Force and for military customers and, you know, figuring out new sensor packages and that. Um, now today, fast forward, um, you know, I, I was recruited, you know, by a couple cell phone companies to, to look at this and for the new and commercial small drone, um, market. So that was 2015. And so I started my company, which is mapping operations and data on man solutions or otherwise known as MODIS. And what we do today is we're, we're taking battlefield knowledge and we're bringing it to the boardroom. And so we specialize now in logistic and logistic drones and geospatial drones. That means we, we carry sensors that actually map the earth's surface and give intelligence. And we use that and assist companies in helping them scale their businesses around construction, civil engineering, city planning, uh, so they can make effective decisions. Um, so that knowledge that we learned all the way back, you know, whether my civil engineering, whether it was my, my uh, intelligence background, naval aviation or drones, all of that is fusing. And we're really, I'm sitting as one of the few that have really, really strong commercial um, application or understanding and federal application, uh, and not just in actually how drones do, but really where all this is important is in information management. How do you take all this data? And it doesn't matter if it's drones or, or it's Google. How do you take all this data and turn it into something that has business relevance? Uh, and so that's my life right now and all the dots that connect to what I do now.
Definitely. And uh, as we sort of move on now into a discussion on surveillance drones, I guess for some context for our listeners, could you provide us with a brief history on the usage of drones by the military? I know now that reconnaissance drones were deployed in the Vietnam War, but were they used before? And I guess how has the usage of drones in the military developed since then? Okay. Yeah. Well, drones have been around for a long time in in various shapes and forms. Um, I mean, all the way back to World War II, they would have something called the drone, um, which was remote, a little bit of radio controlled, but not nothing like you would see today. You know. Uh, but in the military realm, when you look at how militaries operate, we were sending people ahead of the battle force to figure out what the other guy was doing really since the dawn of time. And we just, over time, got more and more creative in how we did this, whether um, we were sending people up in balloons or zeppelins or eventually airplanes, um, you know, and that natural progression, you know, is the natural progression now to take, you know, an aviation asset with a pilot in it and try to take the pilot out. Um, you know, because it's it's much more costly to shoot down a, a, a jet fighter that has a person in it, uh, considering that each person doesn't have a value per se. I mean, we can give it a number. You know, like my training when I was all done it was probably somewhere around ten million dollars in training, and so you could assign that value on there. But in the end, all that expertise and, and all of that is lost. You know, for very minimal gain. So. You know, I think the first real remote crafts you would have out there was really Gulf, uh, I think the first Gulf War where we were actually doing uh, tomahawk strikes. And, you know, in that point, you know, for us, everybody thinks, you know, for the folks that aren't in the federal area that, that, you know, that with war, there's no rules. We don't do, we do whatever we want to. And that's so far off. There are, there are rules to engagement that we have to live by, you know, and there's lawyers that that's their whole profession. And, um, you know, when we're talking about rules of engagement or ROE, you know, at one point, the automation was so good that we were, you know, lobbing missiles and, you know, towards targets without any decisional or we like to call human in the loop interacting here. Um, And so after the Gulf War, we determined that, yeah, maybe that wasn't a good idea. You know, we for the rules of engagement, we really needed a decision maker because we could have blue and blue. We, We could be firing on somebody that that is not a hostile. Um, and so for that that whole point, we needed better intelligence. So instead of sending, you know, automated munitions um, into the battle force, now we're doing more, um, we're, we're sending up requirements to send out automated intelligence gathering. So the first real one that, that, that in this modern day, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure about Vietnam, but Really was uh, Bosnia Herzegovina. We, we, you know, had a prototype by General Atomics uh, that they was initially funded by the Navy. Uh, they abandoned it and the Air Force picked it up, and so they had two of these units and they were testing that. Uh, and it turned out to be a great intelligence. I mean, they, you know, the the potential of losing a life was a lot lower, actually zero, and you were getting that real time intelligence where they were streaming you know, video down to a command center where the battle force commander could make accurate and timely decisions in, in how he wanted to handle the battle force or the battle space. Um, so that's the first time we've actually really used it. Now, it was so successful that the Air Force started to expand it. 
Um, so eventually in Afghanistan, you know, pre- um, yeah, predators were, were used in there exclusively. And then at a certain point, it was decided that they would try to put Hellfire missiles on. Uh, and that was successful. But again, for your readership, 90% of what a drone does, um, even to this day, even if it has weapons on, uh, it is designed to be an intelligence gathering platform because that cockpit, wherever that, that may be sitting, it may be sitting in New York, it may be in Nevada, it may be in um, in uh, Riverside. I mean, there's lots of places that these things are actually controlled, uh, even though the airplanes are on the other side of the world. Um, without that person watching, monitoring, tracking, um, finding out what's going on, that intelligence is important because we just don't pull the trigger. There, there, I mean, there's lots of criteria that have to be met, um, you know, to actually make sure that that person is actually doing that activity and that that cause of force is is uh, proportional. So, you know, that that all has to go through a lot of legals before we actually pull the trigger and go kill somebody for for all intents and purposes. So, a lot of that on a predator, that's what happens. But then. The smaller drones are doing the same thing. And now, you know, fast forward to today, they're moving it down to the platoon level. So they're smaller, they're lighter, they go, um, and and they're more intimate. So they'd be launched from that platoon commander, from that unit member to get intelligence into the platoon level. And now we're even looking at ways to take that and put it into a net-centric integration so that it's shared across all our groups. So that is really, like I said, it's all about data management, uh, and that's what drones do. Absolutely, and I, I think it's important for you to point out the differences in the types of drones and the different use cases for them. Right when I think uh, the public thinks about drones, we think of of predator drones or reapers, right? These lethally lethally armed drones, but uh, these surveillance and reconnaissance drones are are crucial as well, um, right? I mean, again, we we have this. Uh, Hollywood version of of surveillance being human or you know human intelligence, but this uh, reconnaissance and uh, geospatial intelligence is important as well. I just I, I'm curious if you would make a few more comments or got, got give us a a better understanding of how geospatial intelligence kind of plays into the usage of drones. Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to my days in Iraq and Afghanistan is a good point because this was. For me, that pivotal point where I knew I was going to finish my career, but I also knew that I wasn't going to stay past 20. And it was all because of this capability and, and wanting to, to bring this back to the United States. Um, because I just felt that it was such value. And it, it's amazing that it's still, you know, uh, 12, 13 years later that we haven't fully seen this in the commercial market. And what I mean by that is my, my typical day was I would have um I would have people of interest, places of interest that I would be monitoring. And I'd be looking for things like criminal activity, weapon caches, uh, armed conflict. You know, these are the things that I normally would be looking, you know, so general policing would be a good way of looking at it. And that's I think for most people, that's what we think that that's always doing, always happening, right? Um you know, but where the pivotal point for me was in the, um, you know, in the secondary information, we started to reach out because, I mean, I really wanted to see what this stuff would do. 
I mean, what, what other information could I get? Because remember, I have an intelligence background. And so I started to reach out to uh, construction battalions and, um, you know, uh, urban planners and, and some of the other elements in there. And they all had a requirement, but they couldn't get this information. So we have, you know, collection managers. And so I had my collection manager that was telling me what human, human intelligence um, information I need. But then I also made sure that I could also have a collection manager that would collect other information that was, let's say, static. It's not moving. It's not, it, I don't need a particular point in time to collect it. And so I would be able to fly over cities on, and change my route a little bit on my way back and, and get imagery over uh, a village, or I would get imagery over a roadway or a line of communication. And what we found there was amazing. Uh, I mean, this was my pivotal point is I could see where roads were being washed out. Drainage ditches weren't working. Um, the, all the lights are out in the city at one night. It's like, oh, this, their generator is out. And we had no idea. We had no idea until they got that imagery. And then they'd send folks out to repair it. Um, but now you fast forward to the day where, you know, I'm a, you know, a photogrammetrist and a lighter specialist. So what that means is I use pictures to create 3D models. And I use lasers to create 3D models. So I do something called reality capture. And what that does now is I can now take the Earth's surface, any building, and I can load that into a program and I can get, for that snapshot, I can get a three-dimensional image that I can measure down to the centimeter of of the accuracy of that building. So it gives me a three-dimensional snapshot. Um, And this is what's transforming you know, not just the military, it's transforming construction, utilities, um, you know, as they start to embrace digital architecture, that geospatial is so important because now they can build their whole earth model uh, in a current state. And then they can layer their virtual reality or they can augment their buildings and how they want them to be before they even break dirt. And they can see the errors that they may have um, before they even build. And so it's saving so much money, um, you know, in just design costs. Um, And then traditionally, you'd send surveyors out to the field, you know, and there's so much human error and so much interpolation where a three-dimensional high-fidelity model, you walk through the space like you're really there. Um, So it's phenomenal what we can do today, you know, using three-dimensional reality capture modeling. And so that, I think that would be the counterpiece, at least for right now. I mean... There's a multitude of other sensors, um, like we have uh, multispectral sensors, uh, which measure very specific quantums of light. And with that, you know, it's like looking at a, looking at the world in a different set of colors. So we see vegetation that's that's maybe challenged or dying, or we can identify different species of trees. Uh, one project we've got right now is in uh, Joshua um, Joshua Tree, where we're identifying Joshua trees by the light reflectance. We're measuring them with LIDAR, which is light detection range laser scanning. And then we're counting them and we're classifying them to see how many of these things are actually being poached and the health of them. So we have population studies. So that would be the extreme of what we do today, um, if that makes any sense for you all. 
That does, certainly. And I think another big thing we hear about with drones is this idea of network-centric warfare. So again, I guess for our audiences who might not be as familiar with this, uh, can you explain to us a bit about what actually is network-centric warfare? And how have drones in particular enhanced our capabilities in this domain? And are there more inherent risks, I guess, with the usage of drones with network-centric warfare? Yeah, I mean, the big thing here, you know, for the folks that aren't familiar with warfare and, 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 and the stages of warfare, um, you know, and when you look at warfare historically, the person that was the most successful in any era had some type of technological advantage. Um, so, you know, in the days of the Romans, it was, you know, uh, you know, metallurgy and roads that made Rome the, the country that it was, and then having a systematic set of rules and laws. So, you know, the, the, in, the, in that day and age, the ruling technology was metallurgy, you know, and, and, uh, and construction. Now you move into, um, you know, like, let's say the British Empire for one, uh, or, or that time frame, you know, then it became about you know, logistics, okay, the, the ability to, to move people around um, the globe more efficiently than anybody else. And then shortly after that, you know, still during the, the, the British Empire, but getting into World War I, World War II, and even into our Civil War kind of time frame, then it was about production. And so we fought wars of attrition based on how many people we could send and how much equipment we could build. All right. And wars were generally won by how much we could overwhelm another person. Yes, tactics were involved, but it was all really about, you know, your prowess and how much you could actually produce. Now we move fast forward into today and we really are sitting in the information warfare timeframe. So all the other stuff that we had before on, you know, the ability to craft is important and the, um, you know, the ability to manufacture and the ability to, to do science and design and, and leap forward in technology. Those are all still important foundations. But really today, the, the countries that are going to have dominance in the future coming up are the ones that are going to be able to process, analyze, and interpret information better than anybody else. Because that means they have to use less resources um, or maybe even no conflict at all to achieve their strategic objectives and resolve conflict. So getting back to this, this net-centric piece of this is now we are setting up like an internet uh, where, you know, it could be, I mean, the, the element that takes ground is the human um, and the human with its machines. And we want to make sure that that human is the most efficient on the battle space. You know, that he's taking ground correctly and he's not, we're not going to lose that most valuable resource because, you know, even though we're in the business of taking risk, you know, to serve the American populace for, you know, overseas, you know, we generally do not want to lose our people. That is my most valuable resource. That's what I value most is my men and women that are out there for me. Um, so now we start to add layers of, of information. So we send out. Uh, jet aircraft. We send out uh, radar dishes. We have satellites. We have um, listening devices, and then we have drones. And so all of this fuses together in what we so what used to be called net centric, or sometimes now mesh, 
There's a bunch of different terms for it. But regardless, is all that information is being fed into um, these informational nodes that can be interpreted by somebody, whether, you know, and the push now is to do this in real time. So like the helicopter I was flying, my job was to be in front of the ships to see what was out in front, to look at, you know, what, is this a merchant ship? Is this a pirate ship? You know, and all that was streamed back to my, my, my ship that I'm using. But my ship was actually attached to a whole aircraft carrier. And all the information that I collected was shared to all the ships around that aircraft carrier. And then that aircraft carrier was sending that all the way back to other places where that was also being looked at. So that information wasn't just organic to me. It was organic to the entire group of us. Now, you know, fast forward to today, that drone is slowly replacing what I used to do, you know, and going out and gathering that information. And then people are interpreting that and it's, it's changing, you know, what's happening at the very leading edge where that person is involved. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, and I think an important aspect of this is the dual use nature of this drone technology, but also central to that is the cyber element, right? I mean, it's core to the operations of drones, um, this, these cyber systems. And so with that, how secure uh, are our military drones, but also the civilian or private sector usage of drones as well? Do we have to be legitimately concerned about the hacking of drones, right? Whether you're on the battlefield or maybe at a job site. <laughs> that is a great question. Um, you know, I would say yes and no. And, um, you know, back in, uh, you know, 2007, 2008, when I was on, um, you know, you had to understand how the drone was controlled, but everything is hackable in, in, in today's world. My computer, the the phone I'm talking to, everything, you know, with um, has cyber vulnerabilities, okay? And so at a certain point, you know, folks realized that we weren't encrypting our, our video feeds. Now, that doesn't exist today, but so they may not be able to control my drone, but they could see what I was looking at. And eventually we got smart to that and changed it. Um, and uh, that it was a learning point for me. So that is what is happening today in in the commercial market. So the commercial market tends to be 10 to 15 years behind uh the military markets, you know, because the military is spending for leading age leading edge innovation. Um and it's not shared with the commercial market. So they're relearning this stuff uh as we speak. Um you know to the point now though this is the challenge we have and we talk about cybersecurity is that a lot of the drones, you know, and to be fairly honest with everybody here, the U.S. has lost the technological advantage when it comes to um, automation, innovation uh, around the drone market and a lot of the AI. I mean, you know, we're trying to recapture that right now. And it's it's just a sad fact that we have sold ourselves away for for cheap labor, um, you know, in that regard. So, you know, I think some folks, some of your listeners may have heard about you know, Huawei as an example, or DJI, you know, and how there are, are cyber concerns. And I think what people don't understand in here is that, yes, one of the requirements like in the DOD now is, is a cyber compliance uh, and not to be so tied to um, uh, to the infrastructure network. And the reason being is that 
you know, when we study these systems and, you know, maybe it would be different if it was our systems and we would be protesting. But when we study these systems and, and particularly in China, you know, there's a couple things we had to worry about. And one is, where is our data going? Um, maybe not as important to the average person right now that is using a, a toy DJI drone with a, a laptop or a, not a laptop, but a tablet. Um, because you may not understand everything that might be collected, but overall, in general, uh, the U.S. kind of has a, a, a no monitoring, uh, you know, we do not legally monitor our own populace, you know, unless you go get a warrant, uh, you know, or you're under the Patriot Act, where that's not the case and that's not the mindset uh, of, of the Chinese uh, PRC, um, where, you know, they're doing one of the largest human monitoring effect right now, or effort right now. Um, so now it goes to the question of when we look at the design of these systems and we look at where is our information going, um, you know, and we've done those studies, we don't exactly know, but there's enough packets of code that are being channeled off other places that, that we can't account for and do not make any sense whatsoever. Um, and so that's where we're worried about countries or companies like Huawei that are going to have the 5G network um, and, and can write the code in there to channel your conversations and channel your data off of the 5G network, which is a secure network. Um, and the same thing's true now when we look at uh, your tablet. So a lot of these drones that are in the, in the toy market run off your cell phone. And a lot of people don't think about it. They put their cell phone onto it. And they're like, oh, well, I don't care if DJ knows where I'm flying. That's not the point. The point is, where's the rest of the information that's on your cell phone going? You know, where's your bank account information? Where's your, I hate to say it, where's your Facebook account going? Uh, your Twitter, you know, your, your other pieces of personal information are now open. Um, because when you're going through and you're clicking that software, you're going, yeah, I agree, I agree. I mean, how many people actually read that? And more importantly, how many people are looking that in the eyes of a lawyer? And then do you really have a choice, you know, when you, um, to say no, you do not have a choice to say no, otherwise you can't use that. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing about cybersecurity is, you know, is really your personal identification, your personal information. Um, now the other piece of this that, um, most people, I mean, yeah, most people aren't going to really understand um but and we'll we'll kind of talk about this a little bit is now we'll talk about the information that the drone is collecting um so a lot of these systems will actually use in cloud because we're so used to pushing our stuff up into the cloud that if you don't turn it off you can push your images up to be stored let's say in a, in a dji app or some of these other apps or they could be just you know, pulled off at leisure when you have your uh, system on and it's hooked up to Wi-Fi. And you, you really wouldn't know unless you're paying attention. I'm not saying it always is happening, but it can. Um, and so what does that mean? You know, do they really care about your backyard? No. But for me, who's a, you know, a commercial geospatial analyst, I work for utility companies. You know, I work around military, cons uh, you know, and, and critical infrastructure. And now those images that, that, are, that I'm taking you know, they're geotagged, so they know exactly where that image is taken from, uh, you know, down to about three feet of accuracy, um, you know, and, uh, you know, and they, they, a lot of times I'm taking pictures over top of each other. So, 
these images that I'm taking, first off, can be turned into three-dimensional models. And that's fine. But then it tells, you know, using uh, machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence, you can now run algorithms that identify a whole slew of things like, uh, you know, where all the power lines are, you know, critical towers, where communication nodes are, uh, where the railroad tracks are, where the state of things, are, what has actually changed. And for me, being in the intelligence community, you know, we used to have to work really, really hard to get that stuff. I mean, we'd be paying millions of dollars to fly satellites over countries to to peer down, to look and try to assess from, you know, 20, 30, 40 miles above the Earth's surface, you know, with, you know, two feet, three feet of, of resolution. Now you have it on a cell phone um, and you could be flying right up and I could read, I could read the VIN number off of your hood of your car. You know, and so all that information now is open, uh, and I don't think people realize how much vulnerability they have, um, and I don't think they understand that you know what that actually means. Not just from national security, um, you know that when you look at China and these other countries, uh, you, you know it used to be we defend our, our bases about giving away a, a military secret, but what we've learned and what the Chinese have learned and others is that the more critical piece is getting into our innovation labs, you know, not just for military secrets, but also for like right now, the big thing is, is how fast can we get to a vaccine? Everybody's trying to steal everybody's um, information on how to generate vaccines. That's not a military secret. That's a corporate espionage secret. But yeah, to loop it back here, um, you know, when we talk about information and, and hacking drones, um, you know, it's, it's, you can hack a drone. There's no doubt about it. It's getting harder and harder. Um, like for instance, the drones that we design, you know, are built to run on, on the cellular network, you know, and we do encrypt them so they can't be hacked in. And, you know, that's mostly for safety reasons so that, you know, mostly for, for non nefarious that some kid that's on the beach with me isn't, isn't all of a sudden now controlling my drone and I'm controlling his, um, but it could have nefarious results. And so, yeah, we do make sure that, you know, our signals are actually encrypted. So I think that answers your question. I think it did. And uh, I mean, some of this stuff, in all honesty, reminds me a bit of Skynet from uh, the Terminator series to an extent. <laughs> but uh, I mean, when we're talking about corporate espionage, right, uh, are we seeing like some of these Chinese made drones, for example, DJI, with the software updates sort of coming in all the time for it to be operable? Are we seeing like them gathering data by flying over governmental buildings, for example, flying near military bases? Is that a real risk or is that sort of overstated? Yeah, so that's basically, I mean, is it, is it overstated? Are, are we being too paranoid? I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I can tell you what I believe, um, you know, and, and I'm a firm believer in globalization and I'm, I'm a firm believer in, um, in competition. Okay. And, you know, I think that honestly, the, the owners of DJI, they, they, you know, they, um, you know, they went to college and then they, they found this cool thing and he really loved what he did and he's making a great product, you know, and, uh, He's got a lot of investment and, and things are moving on. Um, the problem is, you know, that in the U.S., you know, you don't, I mean, you have military sponsorship through grants and research funds for very specific things, um, you know, and then otherwise you have to go to the bank and get a loan. 
or you have venture capital. That's how the Western society works. So, um, you know, unlike Europe and and uh, in China, where you have a lot of state sponsorship that can happen, um, you know, the U.S. for 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 better or for worse is lagging in that uh, in that financial piece. You know, and I only mention that because, you know, the biggest person that's backing DJI is is the Chinese government. Uh, so now, you know, at least here in the U.S., if you're an investor who owns a good chunk of your company comes in and says, I really need you to do, you really don't have a lot of room to wiggle on. Um, and, and that's the piece. And then we have some cultural differences that to lead, you know, that while I can't say that it is or isn't happening, uh, the possibilities of it happening, even if the owner doesn't know, is, is, is higher, more likely than not. Um, so it's a risk that, you know, when you look at national security and you look at trade secrets and you look at that, you can't rule it out. Um, and that's, that's the piece. Like, I enjoy, I like DJI. I like their equipment. Um, I think they make a hell of a good drone, you know, better than what I could do based on my funding level today. Um, you know, and so they make a great product. Uh, at the same time, you know, I'm not willing to bet the farm that it's secure you know, for national security interests. And, and that's the piece that has not been resolved, um, you know, and I don't think it really can be resolved. So I think that, uh, um, you know, you have to you have to be a little skeptical and you have to look at it. Uh, so that's my most balanced view um, of the market today and, and where those risks really are. So this kind of gets me thinking about uh, two interrelated questions. The first is, where do you see these technologies going uh, over the next five to 10 years? And also, how does uh, the U.S. government play a role into, uh, into this, right? I mean, we, we see public-private partnerships across the defense industry um, to both advance national security and private sector growth. Uh, so how can such partnerships enable growth and increase security when we're talking about drones and the related technologies? Yeah. Um, good. Wow. That's a great question. So, you know, what's happening here in the U S space is first, you know, the DOD is, is, is waking up where they're increasing their spending, um, whether it's a defense innovation unit or some others, uh, army labs, um, you know, and, and that kind of thing, or, um, yeah, National Innovation Center. All these are AFWorks. All, all these centers are are, are funding, which is good. Um, and there is a there's a lean, you know, for better or for worse. That you know, if you have VC backed money, uh, you're more likely to get some of these innovation grants than you would in the past. Um, so the military or or the um, the government is starting to 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 lean to say, hey, you know. Um, you know, it's it's good to have investment, and we we want to reward that. Um, you know, and I think in the VC world, depending on who that investment firm is and that collection of investors, I think they are starting to see that having federal contracts, um, you know, is is actually profitable, and and is if you have survived, um, you know, in a, a uh, innovation research grant that you. You know, and you're in into your phase two where you're starting to commercialize that initial uh, innovation. That you know, you're probably 
a safer bet. You present more, you present, excuse me, less risk um, and, and will probably break out to be some form of product that will either uh, could be sold on the market or your company will be acquired by somebody. So in that regard, um, you know, that, that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty exciting stuff on those type of partnerships and it's stuff that we're, uh, you know, we're seeking out as well. Um, now, as far as, you know, where the U.S. is going in its entirety, but uh, in the drone market, I mean, we used to be, you know, the technological leaders and we are losing, absolutely losing. And, um, you know, it's not really anybody's one particular fault as far as, uh, you know, bad policy or bad economics. Um, you know, part of it is, again, um, you know, we have regulatory uh, pieces. I mean, this technology that we have today, uh, you know, I was flying beyond line of sight in mixed airspace around airfields, um, you know, overseas, of course, you know, in, in airspace that, yes, is less complex, but I still had to go figure it out. And all those lessons that we learned in 2007, 2008, 2009, I still to this day cannot do what I was doing 12 years ago. Um, so there is a, you know, what we've seen from the Department of Transportation and the FAA and these folks is a, a burying of the head in the sand. Um, you know, we're back in 2015, 2013. Uh, these guys did not want to engage. The FAA did not want to engage and bring drones in the airspace to the point that, you know, my, one of my program managers who was an aviation lawyer working for General Atomics and I, we were sitting there trying to figure out how to get a commercial drone to fly beyond line of sight. And we're like going, shoot, we had to just go do it and get sued, you know, so that we could have a, we could have a court case to take up to actually make this happen. And so that's how bad it was back in 2013, you know, and if, if the um, if Congress hadn't stepped in with its funding, you know we may not have moved in yet, even yet. Where, you know, you look at Switzerland, you know they are openly working on uh, beyond line of sight, which is the, the next big thing, as uh, you know, as a national network. Now, Switzerland is smaller, <laughs> so I'll give them that. But they are being more innovative, you know. And I think this is what's disappointing here, you know, Andre, is that. The U.S. is known for being innovative. They're known for being risk takers. And what we're seeing from the FAA is, is that those policies are not being – they're more worried about suing. They're more worried about liability. I agree with the FAA on aviation safety first, but they're not jumping in to take policy, you know, and they're not providing areas that we can take more risk that, that are still aviation safe. Um, now they may disagree with me, but you know the proof is in the pudding. You know we are not flying beyond line of sight. I have drones to this day, right now that I manufacture that fly five hours with a with a twenty pound payload, can fly you know roughly about three hundred fifty miles. I can't go beyond line of sight with that thing, and this thing is designed to carry you know cryo tubes uh, of vaccines and stuff like that to go save lives between airport or between uh, between hospitals. You know, and so, you know, while that doctrine is just now starting to come out in those those regulations or the uh, the lawyers have figured out ways to weave through that um, through the FAA far aim set of laws uh, until we are actually able to standardize this, 
um, you know, the U.S. is going to trail the rest of the world on that. Now, we're the largest market. Um, but as far as where I see us in five to 10 years, uh, I do see um, like logistics. Probably we're going to lead with logistics uh, just because there's more money there, you know, and you always want to follow the money. Um, so we'll see. I still think Amazon and uh, UPS are still in this um, marketing phase where they're talking about the last um, the last mile where we're going to fly drones off of uh, trucks to your front yard to drop off your Amazon package. While on paper, that is uh, a huge cost savings. I mean, it's phenomenal. Um, seeing that kind of roll out in scale, uh, I don't see. I still think we're still in the testing phase there. Now, where I see things happening that are much more realistic is from warehouse to um, to retail. So, you know, a, a drone will leave the warehouse and let's say you are at, um, for lack of a better store, let's say you're in Nordstrom. Well, you know, retail, your real estate, if you're still buying in a store, is is expensive. So, and you don't want to carry a lot of inventory. So some of the concepts that are being said is that Okay, I, I buy the dress off the rack and I have one dress size for everything that I need and I got one color for everything I need. And I go buy that dress and it gets registered in my point of sale ca- uh, cashier thing. It sends a signal to um, Amazon or the warehouse to send me another one. It gets loaded in a drone. It flies from the warehouse, wherever that is in the city structure, to the rooftop of that mall and drops it off so you can have a restock within 20 minutes. You know, or we can see what we're doing, which is the transfer of uh, kidneys as being one of the largest um, organs that needs critical time transfer. That, you know, that organ transfer could happen uh, where the drone is on the roof. Uh, you, know, you run up to the roof with your, your cryo-freeze container. It gets moved to the next hospital or to the next drop-off point, uh, the airport, for instance. Uh, and, and off it goes. So you can save time there. And that's where I see a lot of the um, the technology of today going, because that's where the money is. Um, then there's my world, uh, or specifically the core part of my business, which is in, in mapping. And uh, so I see a lot of sensors like cameras, like LIDAR, like, like uh, we call synthetic aperture radar, which are mapping sensors that can fly down corridors and, and assess health because, again, that's where the money is. If I can identify, like one of the leading problems we have in, in the utility industry is identifying vegetation that could damage, fall down, uh, or slack into power lines and cause an outage. And so, you know, that's where right now, like stuff that's happening with PG&E is that vegetation monitoring and alerting um, you know, field managers to where these critical things are happening, um, you know, so they can make better business decisions uh, and do preventative maintenance, which is cheaper. That's where I see it it, it actually happening. Uh, but what I want to do on this last bit is to close with all of these capabilities, all of them, whether it's logistics uh, or you're dealing with geospatial information technologies, there is a heavy machine learning computer component. Um, because if I was to fly that entire geo corridor and I collect all this information, you know, the, I think like the surveyor, for instance, the surveyor that's, that's embracing some of this technology, they get it. I mean, they, they like look at the data, 
they're trained to look at it in and out and, and they have the time or their mindset is to look at all that data and, and process it because that's all they do. But really, who's buying these things? They're, they're CEOs, CIOs of companies and or their field managers, and they've got a million other responsibilities. So that same information that I collected that even that field worker would be happy to have just that raw data needs to be compiled, sorted, and, and compressed into some kind of visualization that helps them make a rapid decision. So if we were to image a power line section with a lot of vegetation, we don't want to give them the, the virtual reality map. And this is where that we were talking about the Chinese using uh, machine learning and, and, uh, and artificial intelligence is that we would do that same thing with that track and, and identify all the risk areas. And we don't even present the three-dimensional image. We get on a Google Earth or a, a Google Maps and we do a red, white, blue or red, white, yellow stoplight chart over those sections so they can click on it if it's of interest and drill down to see what the problem is. So that's the level that, that drones need to go to to really be market useful, whether it's logistics or geospatial information sciences. And on the, that note, I think that's a wrap. I think that was a great discussion. It was very educational for all of our listeners, uh, really to understand, I guess, the history and the usage of surveillance drones as well as how, you know, the public sector meets the private sector to an extent, right? Like, you know, really understanding how these military technologies have now become very useful in the commercial sector. And of course, the national security risks, as we just discussed, uh, of these new technologies and these new assets. So, uh, Dan, on behalf of myself and Ryan, we want to thank you for taking the time to come on this podcast. Uh, certainly, thank you for your service to our country. Uh, through your service in the Navy. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, you can check out some of Dan's work at Modus as well. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me out here. And um, yeah, if anybody did want to get a hold of me, our website is modus-ai.com. So uh, they can reach out through there, see what we put together, and, uh, and they can contact us through that portal. Thank you, Ryan and Andre. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast. Podcast.